you guys know how like one of Ebert's most famous like bad reviews is his Taste of Cherry review. Yeah. But now if you think about it in the context of him being CIA, it makes sense. It's just anti-Iran propaganda. Yeah, I think he had positively reviewed his previous films. Because Close Up is before Taste of Cherry, and I yeah. think he like gave that for... Well, clearly the agency sent in. him the memo. Yeah, they you know? like, yeah. he, was, he was responding to Kiarostami as Roger Ebert at first, and then he was responding right. as Roger as, Ebert's as, CIA. As Agent Ebert, yeah. Yeah, Agent Ebert. Special Agent Ebert. Oh, my God. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? Then crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the house. That's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I am joined here by Ryan Saunders and me, Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which each week one of the hosts throws down the gauntlet by picking a topic. The two other hosts pick movies in reaction to that topic, and then we get together and hash it out. Run the gauntlet. Hell yeah. I gotta stop saying uh, run the gauntlet twice in the intro, but, you know, that's fine. (laughs) This is branding, right? Yeah, dude. So, as you guys know, I'm a bit of a crime fiction and film aficionado. And, you know, like uh, most sort of mainstream genres, the, the crime genre itself has been historically dominated by men. Although, many notable counterexamples, right? Agatha Christie, Patricia Highsmith, so on and so forth. And I've always loved that shit. I've always loved when a masculine genre gets upended or challenged or contorted in different ways. And so this week's topic is Murder, She Wrote. I asked the boys to bring me murderous films made by women, and that's exactly what they did. I don't really have anything profound uh, to say otherwise. uh, Other than you have like a, you have a criminal mind. Yeah, I definitely, (laughs) well, yeah, you know, Kyle and I watched many seasons of Criminal Minds, and I gotta say, you know, that show should be banned. (laughs) Another mom favorite, weirdly enough, that show. Yeah, because it's like, it was like gone on in syndication, like all these channels, it's like playing in the ER. Yeah. Uh, and this is a show that's like as grotesque as Hannibal. They're like turning people into, you know, human marionettes on network television. Mm-hmm. Very graphic. So you could say I have a sick mind. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so let's, yeah, let's get, get it. <laughs> so let's get it going. Ryan, what did you pick for this week? So I picked a Dutch film from 1982 called A Question of Silence, directed by filmmaker Marlene Goris, who also won an Oscar for her 1995 film Antonia's Line. It was interesting, I I hadn't heard of her before, and I was surprised that here's a woman that's won an Oscar for her film, um, and she doesn't seem to really be a part of the discourse in that sense. So yeah, this is a film that, you know, came out in 1982, a bit earlier, 
and it is the story of three women who had no previous acquaintance and while shopping they sort of collectively and wordlessly decide to murder the shop owner very very violently and and ruthlessly and it's sort of implied simply that it's because he's a man and then much of the film is following a psychologist who's trying to get a sense of whether these women are of you know what what their state of mind is are they sane are they insane you know testing what checking whether they're sane or insane for the purposes of the case and in her investigation she starts to get a sense of the world that these women were all living in and finding a lot of similarities in her own world as a woman and the way she's being treated and she starts to get a sense that these women are not insane and if anything they are perfectly sane and sort of brought to a breaking point and ending up in this scenario where they committed sort of a senseless act of violence that sort of can't be explained rationally and yet she comes to have an understanding of how this could have happened. The three women, one of them, uh, her name is Christine, she is a housewife and she does not speak for the majority of the film. She has sort of resorted into a state of self-imposed catatonia because no one ever listens to a word she says and she's sort of become convinced because her husband is so dismissive of her and her own perspective on things that I might as well not say anything at all and then just like sort of live her life as a ghost. Another woman is Andrea, who is a executive secretary, and she works for a domineering man who is equally dismissive about what she contributes to the office and is also exceptionally tough on the mildest of things, whether it's stirring her coffee in a meeting and deciding that it's distracting or just feeling that her time it belongs to him and it certainly does not belong to her. And then the third woman, her name is Anne. She is a jovial waitress at just sort of like a diner type place in the city. She's very loud and boisterous and has like a funny rapport with the men in the shop uh, or in the in the restaurant who are also, you know, equally misogynistic and cruel towards her, but she sort of deflects. That's her way of handling it. And she lives alone. And she used to, you know, she's no longer living with her husband and her daughter has sort of gone on in her own way. And yeah, these women, they meet in the store and throughout the film, we get a retelling of how they ended up at this point and sort of what the future holds for them and what the implications are for what they've done. And yeah, that's a question of silence. All right. Andy, what did you pick? Well, I just realized that the film that I picked is also from 1982. I didn't know that uh, oh. the silence was, I was 82 gonna... as well. So it's interesting. And obviously we're going to get into a lot more weird sort of parallels between these two. But I chose the 1982 now, I think, considered a classic by some, The Slumber Party Massacre. This is a film co-written by Amy Holden Jones, who's also the director. It was actually written by, originally, and we can get more into the, the, the genesis, the strange genesis of this project, but it was originally a script written by the radical feminist Rita Mae Brown. But then it was eventually sort of rewritten and then directed by Amy Holden Jones. And for those who haven't seen it, uh, the plot is pretty straightforward if you've seen any slasher films. A group of teenage girls right on the verge of, of graduating from high school 
and heading off to college, decide to have one last sort of party together as they, you know, face this uncertain future of their lives. And they decide to have one more slumber party together, one more little girls' night in. Uh, however, the plans sort of get thrown a little askew, if you could say that, by a recently escaped psychopathic killer named Russ Thorne. Uh, and Russ Thorne, this crazy guy, uh, this murderer, <laughs> uh, stalks the girls, shows up to crash the slumber party, and with very uh, murderous results, injects his presence, if you will, into the, the night. And there's a lot of killing, a lot of nudity, uh, a lot of goofy bits. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it does have a really high death toll. Oh yeah, for a seventy-five minute film. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a violent, messy movie. Mm -hmm. A lot of death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it, there was even like a gag that like the trunk is getting too full of bodies. He's like running out of room. Yeah, there's a there's a great bit like later in the in the film where he's just sort of being. It's interesting, and I don't want to jump too far ahead all of a sudden, but you know, he, he's a very tidy killer. He's he's constantly going around like moving the bodies and stacking them and hiding them, and then there's this really amusing scene where yeah, he's he's counting up his total for the evening at a certain point, and he's got all these bodies stuffed in a trunk, and he's like one, two, three, four, yeah. So and there's actually you know, and that's again something we're gonna get into, but it's it's also a very humorous movie, and I think in you know, though it was originally when it was released, panned by a lot of critics and people who called it very derivative and just, you know, your typical slasher fare. Over the years, uh, it has been sort of rediscovered by a lot of people as a sort of quasi-feminist take on the slasher film. And that's certainly something for me that I've realized only later in my life re-watching the film and why I thought it would be a perfect film to also bring to the table for this week. So that's what I brought, The Slumber Party Massacre. I enjoyed this double feature quite a bit. I watched them back to back, and I guess we'll, I guess I want to start with, you know, the obvious things they have in common, and that is number one, synthesizers, and number two, uh, yeah, this sort of challenging of, you know, well-worn genres by injecting, you know, a woman's point of view. And that sort of reorients, yeah, a lot of the genre elements of the films. And especially, you know, I was thinking about it too, right? It's sort of, uh, you know, one is a quiet film that sort of quietly challenges what a crime film is and also the, the male-dominated society. And then Slumber Party Massacre, of course, is loud and blunt and, uh, yeah, it's... In your face. It's, it's in yeah. your face, you know, as opposed to the sort of diffuse kind of mystery or investigation of a question of silence, so... And I will say this, you know, I, I also felt the same thing as I was watching them, you know, when we first laid our picks down... I was sort of like, oh, another very cursed double feature we've got going here. I'm sort of excited about that, but was very much expecting a very divergent kind of experience of the two films. But I will say, even while watching Question of Silence, very quickly into that film, like I felt like I was watching, though it's this kind of psychodrama, it had a feeling to me that, you know, it, it felt like a horror movie. It felt very much like that. And, you know, I think partly... As you've said, the synthesizer score had something to do with that. It's this kind of pulsing, driving score. But there's also just this sense of, of doom and violence and despair that's also kind of lingering over the whole film. But yeah, I was actually really surprised because Question of Silence sort of, to me, felt, and I guess in a certain sense it is a, 
a horror film, but you know, not not the the slasher film you would expect of something like Slumber Party Massacre. I agree, and I I don't want to jump too far ahead. However, if we're talking about some of the things that these films have in common, it is, or at least just how it proved to be a very interesting double feature. If you think about the ending of Question of Silence, where, you know, so I guess, you know, if we're talking about, like, the way this film functions, and it's, like, kind of leads to this courtroom case at the end of the film, and all the men who are, like, the prosecutors, and then the judges, like, they just, like, can't wrap their heads around it, and one of them mentions that, oh, like, the, you know, this this could have still happened if it was a, um, like a woman shopkeeper and, you know, as if like trying to undercut the, the impetus for like the, the gender rage at play here, like the battle of the sexes. And then they just laugh it off. And that's how the film concludes is all these women like burst into laughter, both the woman who committed the crime and then people who are also in the store at the same time then visiting the courtroom. And then it's funny, right? Because it's almost, there's this sense of like, you know, what are you talking about? As if there is nothing unique about violence against women and that, oh, violence against women is the same as if this was reversed, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's funny that, you know, with Slumber Party Massacre, here's a film about, you know, a psychotic killer with like an obvious phallic symbol weapon terrorizing these women. And it is this like cartoonish version of it. And if if you think about it too, Slumber Party Massacre is building up the whole time to this shocking conclusion and shocking event where the killer, you know, storms the slumber party. And in the end, you know, the girls become the slashers themselves and take him down. And in A Question of Silence, there's a similar rupture moment, but it's before the film started. And so then the film is like investigating this traumatic moment, whereas Slumber Party is building up to this traumatic moment. But they are, again, centered around these shocking events of sort of gender-related violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, another really, and this might almost seem like a superficial connection, but uh, in in both the movies, it's three women who take down the man. Mm -hmm. It's three women in A Question of Silence, and at the very end, it's three women who all take their turns slashing the slasher and like hacking away at him so that might seem like a super but it was in my mind i was like it's three it's three and three no it's true i was thinking about the same thing and it's funny you know when you see both of these murders actually happen right in slumber party it's like hysterical in the sense that you know they're screaming it's they're full of adrenaline like they can't believe this is happening and it's insane and they're screaming and they're kind of tossing weapons around they think they've got him and then they knock him into the pool and then he gets back out and it's frightening and it's high energy and you know and they're all like emotionally overwhelmed and then conversely question of silence all happens wordlessly the whole thing is triggered by the fact that the shopkeeper sees that one of the women is attempting to to shoplift. She's like stuffing a dress in her purse and he takes it out and she instead puts it back in and then grabs another piece of clothing and stuffs that back in the bag right in front of his face. And then some of the other women in the store do the same thing. They just start stuffing their bags and he realizes there's this collective action. And then when they literally get him on the ground and then start, I mean, killing him, when they start beating him to death with all these different things in the store, they don't say a word. Yeah. And they don't even grunt or make a noise. They and just silently knock this guy down and then commit the act. Yeah, and, and I would also point out that you don't 
see. I mean, you see them doing these things, kicking him. And of course, it's already been sort of explained to us as an audience what they did to him. It's very clinical. Like the psychologist has a scene where she's like with the, the, the coroner. The coroner. And he's going over it and being like, I've never seen anything like this. And he's going over the details of how these three you know, these three seemingly just normal, average, you know, everyday women in this this shop, Boutique 22, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like beat this man to death. And he's going over all the different objects that were used and like how many times. And then, you know, they're even trying to like figure out like, well, what killed him? And he's like, I mean, this kick crushed his head. This one kicked in his temple. He was stabbed with a broken coat hanger. Like, what do you want me to say? Which one? Does it even matter which blow killed the man? Like, yeah, because he they, makes that reference saying like, oh, the, you know, the fucking lieutenant like brought in each of their shoes as if I could then prove which shoe committed the killing yeah. blow so they could pin it on one of them. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in spite of like how graphic we know it is and how violent the scene is, like, the director chooses not to actually show any of, of like, I guess you'd just call it the gore, right? The money shots that that are central to slasher films and horror films. This is not a slasher and horror film. But in not showing it, I also felt that it was, like, that much more terrifying on a certain level. Mm-hmm, that yeah. you're not seeing... Well, they say, yeah, they, they destroy his genitals. Yes. And that's, like, a big part of it because all the men who work for law enforcement or the courts are sort of like, well, this is, like, the worst thing a human being can do. They didn't just beat him to death, but they, like... Yeah, they mutilated him. And, you know, I got to call back to our last episode because in the flashback when in in Question of Silence, when they show the murder, it's got like a Escada George Romero vibe. And they're sort of zombies. Like, it's it's crazy because it's this moment of sort of silent solidarity where they all sort of stand up for the one woman and the synthesizer is playing and no one's saying anything. And there's these witnesses who are also sort of act in solidarity with these women by remaining silent throughout the rest of the movie. But this, the idea that this shopkeeper is then killed with the sort of like objects of consumerism, right? They, they say it at the beginning. It's like he was killed with a shopping cart and a, and a, you know, a coat hanger. And it's like a stand for a mannequin and mm-hmm. all these sort of like consumer objects that these women in there quiet rage uh, turn on this man on this man so I mean and then one of the bystanders is even she's like wearing one of the outfits and like has a tag on her shirt you know she was trying something on and so there's like that element too you know I I wrote in my notes I called that scene the the uprising in boutique 22 (laughs) (laughs) I mean right it feels that way like yeah and again I think with the the real beauty of this film I, I, I mean it's a shame that this is I just was the farthest thing from my radar. I'd never even, you know, as you were even mentioning, it's sort of shocking mm-hmm. because this is such an amazing film. And I think it's such a a powerful film, especially in the context of today. And and sadly, conversations that we're, we're still having as people about gender equality and microaggressions towards women. But the film, like, you know, it, it starts to, to really dive into all that, that the sufferings of these women, which are just considered par for the course in any modern society, right? And yet that's why I think for me, it, it, it felt like an uprising. It felt like a revolt. It felt like this... Not an act, as you said, of, you know, which they're trying to determine, like, sanity or insanity, but, like, an act of 
necessity against oppression and mm-hmm. and that it was this kind of like triumphant snapping again calling back even to our earlier episode on like you know revolutions right revolutions and so it, it felt like that to me it felt like a revolution and i think it's amazing how it all happens wordlessly i mean especially for a film that's quite talky and to the point where you know it's hard to walk away from that without getting a sense of what Goris thinks the message of the film is. She sort of like lays it all out there for you. But then when that scene happens, all of the women just silently participate in this. Even the onlookers, you know, like they they don't resist. They don't intervene. They just let it all happen. And it is an incredibly spooky shot when they do kill him because it's held in sort of like a medium wide, you know, it's like, it's probably like waist up and the, it just like kind of lingers on them and they're just staring at the bottom of the frame because he's below the frame. There was something really incredible about just a shot that lasted so long where your protagonists are just like staring below the frame at something you can't see. And striking below the frame. Right. It produced like a really odd, just emotional effect for me while I was watching. I gotta say, I love any film where you can sort of take the title and extrapolate from there. And and Question of Silence is one that I was thinking about throughout the movie. Like, anytime something happened, I just kept going like, it's a question of silence. <laughs> well, so I actually, I did want to talk about the title a little bit because did you catch the translation of the original Dutch title? Yes. It's, the, yeah, the silence... Surrounding Christine M. The silence surrounding Christine M. And I actually, you know... Personally, I find the English title to be much more poetic and interesting and applies to the film in a lot of different ways because so Christine M is the character I was referring to that has like kind of ended up in a catatonic state. No one has ever listened to her. So she's decided just I'm not even going to speak. I'm not even going to bother. Much time in the film is given to the psychiatrist like trying to get her to speak and trying to figure out a way to communicate with her. I think that's why I actually preferred the silence surrounding Christine M. I felt it was so lyrical because she, Christine M, is the the silent figure who sort of instigates this. And that's true. In her instigating it, she's met with silence, silent solidarity surrounding her of these other women. Oh, and then you know these nice. women. We should yeah. also point out that you know that's a that's a big plot point where the police are even saying like they're trying to get these women to talk like. There had to be somebody else in that store, right? This was like a Saturday. It was like a busy day for any anywhere you'd go shopping. And they're trying to determine that. And the women who committed this crime, the, the trio that's on trial, two of them are saying, they're, no, no one else was in there. Well, one's not even talking, right? But don't two of them say, well, basically two of them say that there was no one in there. But doesn't the other woman say, oh, yeah, there were a ton of people in there or something? Yeah, uh, and the, the waitress, I right. think she She's, says, she like, says, yeah, well, it was the afternoon. It was full. Yeah, it was busy. But then, you know, the police can't seem to find any witnesses. They can't seem to find these women. But those women who are very prominent that we've described in this brutal scene of a murder, they show up to the trial. And they're just sort of watching the trial in the gallery. And again, our silent sort of witnesses accomplices that mm-hmm. aren't outed at all by anyone that that remain there remain silent throughout all of the proceedings until of course the final you know moment which you know yeah i'm really glad you said that because you've completely convinced me that both titles are now equally good i like hadn't hadn't it hadn't crossed my mind that the original title was like referring 
too like I was like thinking of it way too literally the the idea that it's her silence but you're right the silence surrounding yeah, the her the shield of women the, yeah. yeah the solidarity mm-hmm. the that invisible is, that is a beautiful title too now think about this too there's also Janine the psychiatrist who's sort of leading you know taking us through this story her whole story is about how she will not be silenced and how she's going to give her professional, honest assessment, because it's her job to determine were these women sane. And when they go to trial, you know, all the prosecutor wants to know is like, what was the motive? Why did they do this? Why did they mutilate this man? And again, it's that idea of this sort of like oppression in their lives that has been building and building and building and building to this moment of violence. And and she tries to sort of articulate that, but they're not willing to listen and they try to silence her and and in the end even her husband who again you know is this sort of like mirror for for jan the whole time of being like ah shit maybe my husband like sucks (laughs) because he is this kind of like just casual misogynist and chauvinist who speaks about reforming our society and how the justice system is rigged but then he's just like telling his wife to shut up and that, uh, you know, she should sacrifice her her principles for his uh, appearances and his career and the PR for for his law firm. Right. Right. And I mean, they get the opening scene is dedicated to setting up that relationship. It's right. Jan and her husband sitting around and he's too busy reading his book to really like pay any attention to what she's saying. And then she's also giving signals that she'd like to be intimate and make love. And he just says, I'm busy. You know, yeah. but and they then do then you... get it on after that. He does. Oh, sure, they do. <laughs> he does go. All but right, it's but know? it's clearly like a moment that is just dedicated to showing us all these microaggressions that he's like kind of throwing in her direction. To to your point earlier, yeah. And there is that core element. Their relationship, I think, is really important because her um, work with these women ends up causing her to like see her own life in a totally different lens. Yeah, it's the crystal that sort of refra- refracts the light. Yeah, you know, once. Mm-hmm. Like her relationship is that crystal where for her in the end, the light of these women sort of shines through and then gives her like a whole new outlook on everything. But I would also, again, since we were talking about the silence, point out that it's like a huge motif for each of these women, right? This idea of silence in one form or another. The secretary, Andrea, she is like silenced. There's a really powerful scene where she's silenced in this meeting right? Because she's the secretary and she's, the boss has been interviewed, her boss, and he's just like, she was essential to the operation here. Like she was, you know, I I couldn't do what I did without her. She was amazing. And then they showed the scene with her where in flashback, she's thinking about this time she was in a boardroom and, you know, Janine even asks the boss, like, well, did you ever consider then having her on the board of elevating her from being a secretary? And then it's like, he's never thought of it. Right. Yeah. And, And he even kind of says something like, well, you know, it's not that that simple and they show this scene in the boardroom then where where she's in there and they're doing business stuff you know and they're going over like reports or something like that and she has done all this research and you know she's got all this stuff in front of her and she makes this great argument that they shouldn't invest in this west african country because yeah, the other subsidiaries enough, in africa right and yeah. she's going on and she's giving this great detailed report and then one of the guys is like hey 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 
make it snappy, like yeah. yes or no, it. yeah, right, like condense it, and then she does give this sort of like beautifully condensed explanation for like what they should do, and then everyone just kind of like eh, whatever, and they're not really listening to her, and then the boss she starts like stirring a coffee cup, and then this other guy next to her like puts his hand on her coffee cup and is like, quit making noise. Right. So again, she's silenced there. And then this other guy speaks up and he's like, well, I don't think we should go in Africa. And, like, and then <laughs> yeah. the boss says, like, great contribution, Bob. Like, thanks a lot. And she's just sitting there then, like, just staring into nothingness, silenced. Right. And not heard and not listened to until, like, Bob comes in and, and repeats what she did, not nearly as elegantly as she did. And then Anne, you know, the waitress she talks about how, you know, she had this really, you know, this relationship with her husband and then her husband left, right? He was like a cop or something. And now she just goes home to to an empty house, a silent house. After being like, harassed all day by guys at the mm-hmm. diner. Right. And then, you know, surrounded by, again, this other sort of form of, of silence. And then, of course, you know, the title character, I guess, if you want to consider it in one way of looking at it, yeah. Christine, who is basically silent throughout the whole movie and interesting because her apartment is the like loudest space in the film there's constantly a radio or television on and then two kids are yeah. uh, like screaming or yelling and then her husband who's just like a bustling a, about yeah just a real like i work leave me alone you know kind of husband who's just very cruel and dismissive of her but every time they cut back to her apartment in flashback it's oppressively loud and you you can sort of just feel how she has been, yeah, sort of silenced. Now is the time, Christine. Now is the time for the opposite of your heart, you are. You can't even lose a bit of the day to take Nou, papa gaat werken nou een beetje braaf zijn, hè? It's a very like tight space too. Like she's trapped in the kitchen, like you know, essentially feeding him his and very, tea. Very like gaudy, you know? uh, like wallpaper and mm-hmm. curtains. Yeah. Like very just kind of ugly. Yeah, but I really like that scene with um, Andrea, with the secretary, in regards to she could never be a part of the the board or the committee because there's also that really telling full executive right there's that really telling moment when janine the psychologist like asks her like oh you work with men and she's like i work for men Mm -hmm. you know i like i certainly don't work with them because she's clearly not given that opportunity and that's the last major silence of the film that i wrote down is that the silence of the men to acknowledge anything that's going on, right? In these in the reality of these women's lives. And again, these men are going, what's the motive? What's the motive? And then you could tell them, well, these these women got fed up and just this just crazy thing happened, you know, where they were all that energy and all that rage was in the same space at the same time. And it just happened, yeah. you know? And they're solidarity was the word used earlier and it's a great word i even wrote it in my notes i think it's the perfect word to describe that sort of you know that that coming together the uprising in boutique 22 because it is unspoken right there's no there's no coordination nothing said as you pointed out none of these women know one another and yet they all perfectly understand 
one another. And while the men are all scrambling through this whole film to determine motive and whys and all this stuff, like that's the, the, the great, I think defiance that we see in the conclusion of the film where, well, the women all get it. They don't need it. Like the motive is plain. Whatever motives are there, they're plain to all of these women. They totally understand it. And there's, there's like never a moment when, as far as I see, all these women together, like speak to one another, you know, to say anything. The only thing that they really share audibly at the end is this laughter when they're all sort of laughing in the court, as you said to this question about, well, wouldn't it be different if it was men? Wouldn't this all, you know, which is the classic guy move, right? Yeah. Being like, well, if you swap the genders, it's a totally different story, right? But that's that's an unspoken understanding that they all share, that all the women in this film seem to share, that the men cannot wrap their fucking skulls around. Yeah, and then they yeah they remove them from the courthouse, uh, saying this trial will proceed without them. Yeah. You know, and that's mm-hmm. everyone. It's the witnesses, it's the, the psychiatrist, it's the defendants, right? And then they're all ushered out. And I read, yeah, this was like one interesting thing I, I found was Barbara Kruger writing in Art Forum at the time of the film's release in New York, and she said that at her screening, women in the audience started to lose it and just started laughing and it like spread throughout the theater. And that's like her conclusion of her piece is yeah. Just talking about how the film can like spread that contagious laughter to the women in the audience in particular. Wow. It's kind of like Death Wish, you know? (laughs) People in Death Wish in New York just started standing up and cheering every time Bronson blew somebody Future future topic, uh, Joe and uh, Death Wish. You know, any of the great American (laughs) movies where people uh, did violence in the theaters because of... uh, the, the movie content. Um, one other like an- amusing similarities between the two films is both have cameos by like feminist authors, their books in the film. In Slumber Party, you see Rita Mae Brown's book, Ruby Fruit Jungle, on the on the desk of one of the girls. And then there's also that great bit when Andrea at first is really hesitant to talk to the psychologist and she's reading a Doris Lessing book, you know, to pretend like, oh, I, I'm, I'm busy. I'm reading this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was kind of fun. Nice little touches in both films. Yeah, I, I really found the flashback structure of Question of Silence to be just so well done, and especially the way that it merges with Janine's story and sort of climaxes personally for her in this horrifying moment when she's having sex she's having sex with her terrible husband, and she starts she starts to have flashbacks to the women and to the crime and to all this stuff she's sort of been investigating. And so, like, throughout the film, it's just constantly going back and forth. We have flashbacks to the home life of the women before the murder. We have flashbacks to the murder. And then my favorite sequence, the flashbacks to after the murder, right? And there's this whole, it goes through all three of them where it's like, since the the murder is is this kind of liberating thing, it's like, well, what did they do afterwards, right? And, and and when they've sort of dealt with this anger and this rage, and so there's Christine goes on the Ferris wheel with her daughter, who is also at the scene of the crime. We should point out, like, her yes. daughter was in a <laughs> stroller in this store 
when her mother, you know. But yeah, she is there at the scene of the crime. And it's really funny when it's, again, all wordless when Christine brings her child into the boutique and the shopkeeper's like, ah, yes, of course. And he, he like moves her, you know, behind the counter. So yeah, Ferris wheel. She goes to the yeah. Ferris wheel. And then uh, Anne, Miss Youngman, she gets the, f- she makes the finest home cooked meal. French she, cuisine. Yeah, she makes French cuisine. From a very expensive butcher. Yeah, that she, she talks like up. does the works and then goes home. And what's interesting about it is that that for her comes up in conversation with Janine, the psychologist, and she's like, oh, and every now and then I'll splurge and I'll do this. I'll make a nice meal for myself, a French cuisine, and she goes over it. Was that a special gelegenheid? No, it was gewoon Die had ik gekocht bij die hele dure slagen. Ja, veel te duur. Maar hij heeft zulke goede kwaliteit vlees. Zo Wanneer heeft vlees hij dat gedaan? I get this. She goes over the ingredients. The expensive butcher. A very expensive wine. Blah, blah, blah. And then Janine asks her, when's the last time you had this? And then it like jogs her memory. And she's like, uh, recently. And she's like, was it the day? <laughs> was it the day of the, that you, you know, murdered that guy? And she was like... Now that you mention it, I did go and make this big, you know, splurge meal afterwards, right? So yeah, she does that. She's one of those great characters that's like really loud and performative to like as a front, but then because she's so performative, she keeps accidentally revealing like real things about her life and you get this like glimpse well, into Well, in that flashback, there's a really haunting flashback. Yeah. Do you guys remember? She mm-hmm. like looks out the window and then she looks back at her empty apartment and then she sees her husband, her former husband and daughter and herself Watching in a flashback TV. where she's, yeah, very pointedly ignored by her husband. So yeah, there's flashbacks within flashbacks. And I and one thing I loved, you know, we mentioned the score is yeah this sort of very ominous synthesizer and i i noticed it was like almost always in a subjective moment that the synthesizer was used so it was like almost ex- almost not the whole time but like almost exclusively yeah. tied to either a memory or like in that moment where janine is even just remembering the movie you know at the end and the synthesizer is sort of yeah associated with that sort of woman's memory and also that the rage as well. And then I think it's really interesting to point out what Andrea does in her moment of liberation. Yeah, so she, of course, she gets an ice cream cone and she's walking down the street and a man solicits her as a sex worker and she sort of happily agrees and she goes and she gives him a very high price too yeah she gives him a very high price and sort of like you know he's like no way and she's just feeling very empowered and is like take it or leave it and so then it cuts to the hotel room and she's on top of him and she slaps his hand away when he tries to like touch her and she eventually and she's still wearing a raincoat yeah, she's wearing everyone. a she's wearing a raincoat and she gets up off of him and it's like the whole movie it's this kind of like roving kind of long lingering long take you know this is a low lowish budget movie a lot of those and she you know gathers her things from the hotel room looks back at the john in bed and just laughs in his face and that is an awesome yeah sort of like foreshadow of course of the like laughing fit in in the in the trial right and a, and also a beautiful i think you know 
instance of role reversal, uh, especially as we've seen in like the history of movies and the depiction of sex workers in movies of, you know, the male John sort of like being the one to leave the one to oh, put yeah. his clothes on and get the fuck out of there. Right. Well, where, where, you know, she screws him, yep. gets paid for it and then laughs at him and leaves. And then Janine, the psychologist who's asking her about this is like, well, you know, like, did you, did you have an orgasm? And she's like, what? And she's like, did you come? And she's like, are you kidding? Yeah. She says, uh, no, why should I? Right, yeah. And then <laughs> and then it's in that moment, you know, where the, the psychology you can see is really, you know, she, who's been trying to make this whole thing kind of clinical. I feel like that was the moment for the psychologist where she really has her, like, a big realization and this big break because in this conversation about her having sex with this guy and everything, that's when Andrea says to her, you really don't understand people at all, especially women. And like that kills her. It yeah. does. It like crushes Janine. She's just like, holy fuck, you know, and and like that sticks with her. That's like when she goes home that night, and then her husband, again, in a sort of role reversal from the beginning of the film, where you know she's trying to climb all over him, and he's like, No, 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 I got work. She's sitting there, like, really like upset and pensive. And they have this dinner party. Basically, the men are the only ones talking during the dinner party to one another. And then afterwards, he's kind of all drunk on brandy or whatever. And he starts to come on to her in bed. And she's like, no, like, no, stop it. I'm not in the mood, you know? For me, it was for her character. It was like this really powerful moment of her kind of going like, holy fuck, you know? Like, these women are now calling me out, you yeah, know? Yeah, and like, that's when he, like, he takes the cigarette out of her hands. And because she's, like, using that as a way to deflect him. And then she, yeah, he takes it out of her hands and snubs out the cigarette. And then she starts having those like imagined flashbacks to the scene of the crime and the woman they're like lit crazy it's like this bright blue light as they're like hovering over the corpse of the the shopkeeper they are but it also seemed to me in that shot of the three of them because it's a very like kind of expressionistic shot like the, mm -hmm. the lights all blown out you know um that it's like the three of them standing together and they're like just looking out as almost if they're looking at her not the corpse but like they're looking at her it seemed to me you know, and it, yeah. it, this weird moment of like them again, like calling to her, you know, like, aren't you one of us? Like, <laughs> like, don't you get it yet? Aren't you like seeing it? Like and then there's also that really crazy flashback montage. I'm forgetting exactly where it happens in the film, but it is sort of related to that idea of aren't you one of us? Like, why aren't you paying attention? Are you looking the other way? And there's that crazy montage of like every shot in the film where someone turns their head away from the camera, like all these like quick shots of someone looking away, like not confronting something head on, refusing to to glance at it. At least that's how I read that. You know what you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. It was great. I don't know. I, that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need to say sometimes. But yeah, no, it is a real. I mean, the, the editing in the film is uh, is really impressive in terms of the flashback structure, and it's all done in like a very engaging, seemingly straightforward way. But once you start like actually unpacking some of it, you know, you get the actual crime itself. It's like we get a little bit more every time. We're constantly returning to it, and we maybe get like thirty seconds more, or we get a little bit closer to the event itself. This like slow buildup. But then, yeah, we're getting flash flashbacks from their own life and then in those flashbacks they're thinking about the past you know even well 
past the flashbacks themselves we were getting. Yeah, and it's all done so smoothly. Um, and in like in not a showy way either. So yeah, I was I was quite impressed. Did either of you two when you were watching and I know earlier, like I said, it was like um in watching uh that when I was watching it, you know, I said it was kind of like uh, it had this sort of horror vibe, but it was also like it felt very like dystopian sci-fi, like seventies <laughs> vision of like the near future society in which we live well in particular the sort of prison architecture in the netherlands in amsterdam in this movie is just yeah it does have a kind of dystopian vibe and the first time you see it is one of the rare moments where the music is not a flashback or a subjective moment but it's jan driving into the prison for the first time shots out of the car and it looks yeah, it does look like the hallways. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, is that because like so many like, you know, sci-fi films in America in the 70s were like, well, we got to go. What do we want to look like dystopian future? We got to go to Europe or whatever. Yeah. We got to well, shoot there's England like- or in like, you know, Amsterdam or France, like that modern European architecture is like seared in American imagination as like 70s sci-fi. Right? Yeah. They walk through a room in, in the prison that is like mid-century modern, like pop art that's like colorfully painted and i was just like jesus like the state funding in the netherlands for this kind of stuff i mean it's yeah. uh yeah it, exactly like yeah that whole prison set is like pretty great i mean honestly pretty swanky prison cells oh yeah compared to american ones yeah it is a bummer that um and couldn't get her clean towels. Seemed like that was kind of cruel of them and set her into a big fit. But I mean, well, I don't and, know, the and Andrea like, says it. She says, I'm going to be taken care of by the state for the rest of my life. I don't have to work and I don't have to like worry about any bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she's like, at least at one point, yeah, happy to leave her life as a business secretary behind. And they're like, and they're like and pretty just, big windows, you know, they get like a good view of the city and yeah, it really, could really be yeah. way worse. Small, small price to pay for uh, you know, a revolutionary act of violence yeah. against uh, <laughs> the oppressive male sex, I think. Right. Yeah. But just, it, but at the same time, you know, like you're right, there is that like really powerful scene where, you know, and the the waitress character who's very boisterous and jovial and and you know, her laughter seems to be the thing that I most rem- remember of her as a character. She's constantly laughing. And even at the beginning, when the, the cops arrive at the diner to arrest her, she's sort of like laughing and joking. And everyone's like, what's going on? And the, the male customers who are always hassling her, like they make a crack about it. And she just says, they're here for me. I done them in, boys. Time for me to go. You know, and she's putting on her coat and it's very like jovial. And, and she seems, yes, like so intractable. She just seems so, you know, durable. And yet she does have this moment of like breaking down of having a sort of like, you know, this this sort of attack, emotional attack when she's in prison over this this towel. Like she's like, I can't get a goddamn clean towel around here. And it is even to me like this this very humanizing moment for a character of of again showing you this laughter as sort of armor against the world and yet yeah deep down inside there is a human who is suffering and lonely and scared and sad and now this realization of like oh yeah well i'm in fucking prison now like my i don't necessarily own my life now i didn't own my life outside of here but I could at least wash my own towels, you know? Yeah, it is a really incredible performance because you talk about her using her laughter as armor, and it really does seem like she does a really great job with that laughter of 
secretly revealing the cracks. And I remembered finding her laughter like pretty infectious and funny and like a, like a very pleasant thing at first when she was around. And then it was later when Janine was like listening to the recordings of all of her interviews with the different women. And when you hear that laughter, like on the static analog tape that she was using to recording, I was like, this yeah, is Yeah, she like... plays back the cackle several times. And I was like, this is like a scary laugh, you know? It was really unsettling. And it was interesting, yeah, when you remove it from her context, like the presence she brings with her very physical performance, and you just hear that laugh, you hear what she's doing with it, and it is, it's a bit spooky. Well, it also reminds me of something, and I'm going to paraphrase this, you know, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, right? But it reminded me of like, I think it's a quotation that's been attributed to Charlie Chaplin about all the, the the suffering and the cruelties and the sort of in, in insane world in which we live, like if we don't have the ability to laugh, like we will ourselves go mad, right? We'll ourselves go insane. You know this quotation I'm talking about. I'm just butchering yeah. it. I'm paraphrasing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. But it like reminded me of that, right? Because everyone's looking for these sort of rational explanations. And Anne's character in particular, she just she she's just laughing, you know? There's so many questions they could put to her that are so either obvious or so pointless that her only response is to laugh, right? The indignities that she suffers on a daily basis, like all she can do is laugh because it's probably the only thing that keeps her from doing, I guess, more of this <laughs> or whatever, right? But even at the ending, once again, when, you know, in the court, all that bullshit's going on about, well, if it was men, this would have been a very different story, right? Don't you think how we would react to this? And, and that's when she, again, like, bursts into this laughter, right? There's no actual response to that sort of ridiculous question from these judges and these attorneys. It's just laughter. And then it's laughter that all the women now start to share, including finally at the ending, Janine, the psychologist, mm -hmm. who is now yeah, finally really like too. kind of part of part of the group, part of the gang, you know, part of the 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 cohort of Boutique 22. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, too, in that moment in the courtroom with the, the prosecutor, especially, who keeps insisting on uh, his inherent objectivity, right? That's sort of like a big aspect of the movie, these guys being like, damn it, woman, be objective. And by objective, of course, he means his specific point of view, yeah, right? Yeah, because he even calls them, like, what does he say? He calls A high-heeled army of fury. I was yes. about to read that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all, it's great that we all wrote that same line, though. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's so over the top, and he, he's, you know, he's doing the lawyer thing of, yeah, just all nasty insinuation, and then going, like, 
I'm objective. What about you? You know, like just being a total piece of shit. And and again, all these women are just looking at this guy and these guys. You know, in, in fact, when the trial starts, there's a 360 degree pan around the room, and it starts with the judges and the lawyers and like the security guard, and then as it turns towards the gallery, now there's women, right? And there's only men on the side of power and all the women are the watching. So even then, yeah, and then it spins around 360. But yeah, it's like he's coming at them so yeah. hard. Because even, and you mentioned this, we, we sort of mentioned this earlier, but, um, you know, in that scene where her husband then during the trial is trying to tell her like, hey, you know, there's a lot at stake here. And, and he keeps saying to her, I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of you. No, no, no. I'm thinking about you and your own, like, the, you know, your own life and your own career. But then he'll say, like, but also, you know, this is going to affect me a little bit, too. You know, and it's the same thing. Like, I don't know. I'm totally objective. Like, but but here's my very subjective view on this thing. Right. It's the same thing. It's like, no, no, no. I'm 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 with you. I'm with you. But I'm also very much against you. You know, I'm very against all of this. It's the same that same sort of double dealing, that same sort of hypocrisy. You know, these ideas of no, no, no. I, I think that the, you know, men and women are the same and well, we can't. We can't pay them the same or we can't, you know, this, that and the other, you know, like that we've heard time and time and again. Yeah, there's a lot of jokes about this, like, so-called progressivism of the Netherlands in the movie, yeah. which I thought was, you know, again, just being an outsider and, like, kind of just catching some stuff, right? Because, yeah, there's the part where her, you know, Jan's husband talks about the rigged system but refuses to acknowledge, like, his own bullshit. There's, yeah, just Janine being treated like a child by other institutional people who are like, well, I, I guess you, you it says you've got great credentials, but then they all treat her, like, with Total contempt. Yeah, and they also say to her at one point, too, like, I mean, the report's really just a formality, you know? Like, they, they're already, like kind of talking down to her and... and yeah, because her husband says that, too. He's like, your report doesn't mean shit. Yeah. The, the trial's like already decided at the beginning, you know? And yeah, your report doesn't mean shit. And and I somebody says to her, I forget who, but somebody says, like, your report will have influence on nothing whatsoever like just it's, <laughs> yeah. it's also then like bluntly said to her you know and in the nice court guys. you know the real drama of the court isn't about the killing you know the, it isn't about that at all the the they're admitting to it they, they're not trying to defend themselves and say we didn't do this like it was somebody else you know we found him like that uh <laughs> it's it's that the, the drama of the court is her and her report where Janine has, and I don't think we've discussed this yet, but where Janine, after all of this, declares them sane. Right. And she's saying, yeah, they're, they're totally sane. Like, they're totally responsible for their actions. And, and that's what the court is rejecting. Yeah, they're going nuts. Yeah, they're like, you can't tell me that any sane woman would do this. And the men are like, they're going at her. She's on trial. Her report is on trial because she's saying... Look, I talked to them. They're all totally sane people. Like, what about her? Like, she's catatonic. She doesn't even talk. And she's like, she could if she wanted to, if anybody would listen to her. But she realized, what's the point of talking in a world where no one's going to listen to me? I'm just wasting breath. Yeah, they can't right? wrap their heads around it because they keep saying, well, if, if they're sane and they're responsible for their actions, that must mean there is a motive. And that's what they, they're like, what, what could possibly be the motive? 
there is no motive. He did nothing, you know, and I think that's what they don't get. Yeah, they're looking for the literal cause and effect, like the one thing that caused this, not the system that caused this or the country or society or gender that caused this this thing accumulatively, right? Yeah, because uh, the explanation would require too many words and they wouldn't even hear it. You know, that's it, right? Like, even if all these women were to explain, because we who watch this film, like, we get it, you know, we see the money, like we, you know, and anybody that has, I think, any kind of empathy or, 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 you know, anything like that, any sort of shred of like human respect, like, understands why this happened. Uh, but this court, explaining it in the court like that would be a, that would be a waste of everyone's time so it's sort of like no it's just know. just laugh it off yeah you and won't you won't get it you know i will say though in all fairness like in all fairness i am a little sorry that it was just this dumb shopkeeper that got <laughs> <sort of laughs> brutally beaten to death you know like i know it's also you can make a point it's like a critique of capital and you know women's fashion and oppression and stuff but i'm also like ah oh, i mean that guy was just doing his job or whatever and he got i, I really <laughs> didn't like his vibe no though. i didn't like his vibe yeah. either yeah but i also think that that's key to the film is that it is someone that is like as seemingly innocent as he really could be like he doesn't even do like a weird microaggression or anything he's just like a guy and that's all it takes that's who catches all. a woman shoplifting we should point out like sure <laughs> but he's just like doing his job he doesn't even like scold her he's just basically wagging his finger he's like i gotta put this back on the shelf like yeah. you can't just take this in your bag yeah. you know? and yet it is badass that then she just like takes it away from him puts it back in the bag and then grabs another item a skirt and puts that in her bag I mean, that was a really great moment. Yeah, like, yeah, that, it is man. funny that all of them doing that for some reason did instill terror in me. Like, if I was a shopkeeper and saw, like, everyone in the store collectively shoplifting and just staring me down while they did it, I would also think, I'm about to die. And I have to say, like... <laughs> It's it's a really thankless role, but whoever that Dutch actor is, I'm assuming he's a Dutchman. My God, that scene is so amazing because of the terror. He just starts sweating like when he realizes like what's going on when he's lost total control of yeah. this world, you know? Yeah. But I, I guess I should say, you know, again, we, we were talking about this earlier. You know, you can draw these sort of parallels between the two films, and I think it, it's maybe a good segue into a discussion of, of Slumber Party, the Slumber Party Massacre, because so Something that people over the years come to really admire the Slumber Party Massacre and, and why it sort of stands out against other slasher films. There's a point to be made about the way that the women in the Slumber Party also band together, that they really come together as a unit. It, it isn't this sort of separation that you see, and especially in, you know, when you watch other horror films where it's always like some guy being like, you know, we'll cover more ground if we split up, you know? But the instinct in the Slumber Party Massacre is for these women to to stick together, to defend one another, to, to fight for one another, to protect one another. They really draw attention to that gag you even just mentioned because there is the moment where the two men do decide to split up, and their reasoning being, well, one of us might make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they both get fucking lit up. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, right? typically in an 80s slasher, right, you know, you have the final girl and she will sort of use her own pure resources to sort of win out by the end. But here it's different because it is a collective of women that decide to 
fight back. Yeah, and one thing I was sort of thinking about, because of course the inevitable comparison to Halloween, you know, will arise in any any slasher film discussion, and especially because as uh, I love pointing out, one of my favorite film facts of all time, but in 1981 uh, Variety reported 25 slashers among the 50 top grossing films a year in which slashers accounted for nearly 60% of all domestic releases. So again, it's like Halloween spawned this this cycle of slashers in which Slumber Party fits, yeah, really right right in that sort of like peak of the slasher. But I was thinking, you know, speaking of revisionism of, of films or appreciating them in, in different ways, Deborah Hill, you know, wrote most of Halloween and the slasher genre was... like restarted this cycle by a woman you know of course with carpenter but uh, i do think it's interesting that for all the shit slashers get about the male gaze or 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 whatever other bullshit some of the greatest entries were always from the beginning yeah made by women and i think one thing that halloween and slumber party have in common that i really like is just the nonchalant friendship stuff i love that shit and that's one of the reasons like Halloween was so big with teenage audiences is because Deborah Hill was writing it for teenage girls to enjoy, you know? And and I think Slumber Party is the same. Like, you can tell it's written by a woman. It's got all these little touches, all these little jokes, all these little things that make these characters somewhat human for us for a for a yeah, just at the very least feeling like they're real friends like it's like a lived yeah. in experience yeah this this movie i mean i've seen so many different takes from people on this film you know people who do call it derivative people who do say it's generic it's a halloween ripoff it's this that or the other which is an unfriendly way of saying what you said which is that you know it, it was inspired you know and and there are some that were sort of shameless ripoffs of Halloween, but there are others who noticed like what was sharp in those films, no pun intended, right? Uh, For a slasher film. But, but yeah, you know, this film's about women, you know, friends. It's about sisterhood. It's about that time, this uh, tenuous time, you know, they're all about to become adults. They're all about to become women. I mean, the 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 film opens with uh, the main character, well, the main-ish character, Trish, uh, throwing out her childhood toys. Right. They're all, she's 18, they're, they're all getting ready to go away to college, and that's sort of part of the reason why they decide to have this, like, last slumber party together before they all go off into the world and that this film ultimately is a a metaphor for that experience of being a woman having friends growing up and then facing a world in which you know you're going to be beset upon by male predators of all kinds driller killers everywhere yeah yeah and and like the innocence and and joy and and camaraderie that you had as like a teenage girl something that all three of us are probably very well uh, oh, yes, you know can speak very well on. but <laughs> right. but no i mean you're right though marsh i mean this film i think what i i really appreciate about it is is the time that this film takes to characterize these people that they yeah. aren't all just sort of your typical generic bimbos in fact like they are they take more action and show more initiative and have way more personality than 
any male character in this film. Like the guys, you know, you're mentioning when, you know, these women are like, we should stick together. Like, this is a good idea. And the guys are like, we should do something for the girls. Let's split up. Uh, but I also love too that they're like, we should do something for the girls. We should make a run for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that like, there's also that kind of instinct of being like, let's get out of here, you know? And then, yeah, they want to split apart and, and of course totally fucking blow it. Right. But throughout this film, it's, it's a lot of just women like hanging out and they aren't just sitting around and talking about boys. You know, they're having conversations. About baseball, baby. Zachary at least made it to the fourth inning with no runs. First met starter past the third in this series. Then Daryl Thomas doubled, and Dusty Baker doubled him in. Right, yeah, they're having conversations about baseball, about, like, junk food, about weed and beer and all this kind of stuff. If anything, isn't even trying to, like, overtly feminize them or overtly, like, masculinize them. It's just like, hey, there's just girls hanging out just like anybody else just normal folks you know and i guess one thing that's interesting about that is because the friendships and the characterization of all the women in the film is so sincere it is odd knowing that originally rita mae brown wrote this film as a parody of slashers and then you know this was something i couldn't exactly figure out in my research about like what the impetus was to play it straight whether that was Amy Holden Jones the director like her decision or if that was like something kind of forced on her from Roger Corman apparently what I know so again we said there was sort of an interesting genesis and maybe this is a good time to just yeah cover a little bit of that the genesis so Amy Holden Jones the co-writer and director of this film like she was she had a sort of interesting start to her career where she became an assistant to Martin Scorsese on Taxi Driver and Martin Scorsese said something to her like, wow, you are way too sharp to just be like an assistant. Like you need to have a career in film. And supposedly, I guess it was Scorsese who sort of encouraged her to like go get a job with Corman and like go work with, you know, New World Pictures and, and Roger Corman. And she did. And she went there to Hollywood and was an editor at first. And she had edited, uh, I think, Joe Dante's first film. So she like worked on that and then decided like I wanted to be a director and then approached Corman about it and was like, I want to direct. And she was like 27. Corman was like, well, show me. What can you do? And then she just, what she says is she just grabbed a script off of his wall where he had like a stack of, you know, unmade, unproduced scripts. And she grabbed one called, well, there's like three different titles for this, right? It's known as the Slumber Party Massacre, but the original title was Don't Open the Door. And apparently Rita Mae Brown's script, the original script, I think it was called The Sleepless Night, if I'm not mistaken. And so she shot like 10 pages of this, this script and then Corman, she took it back to Corman. Corman was like, you got a career. Like, damn, you can do this. You can direct. So then Corman was like, all right, you know, you're, you're going to direct. And she was like, great, I'm going to, I'll find a script. And he said, no, you're going to direct this one. So then she took Rita Mae Brown's script and she says that, she wanted it to be more humorous and and wanted to sort of keep this, you know, Rita Mae Brown parody of a slasher film thing going, but that New World Pictures and Corman and more than Corman, but like the producers at New World Pictures were like, no, 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 let's let's do more like Halloween, you know? We want more like that, right? So they were like, I figured. make it less jokey that it was the producers. And it was also Corman who told her to her face, you gotta have nudity. So that was like a mandate too for her because that's often been, I think, introduced in the discussion of this film of people being like, is it really feminist? Look at all the nudity, look at the shots, the gratuitous nudity. But I think it's a fair point to discuss in, in the ways that, you know, maybe is the nudity 
sort of different in this film? Like, are the depictions of nudity different? I mean, they're very casual. Like, they're very matter of fact. I mean, I do think they're, yeah, like objectifying to a certain degree. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's like one of the reasons this film remains interesting is that tension at the heart of its conception and its vision, right? It's very obviously this sort of like proto-feminist genre sort of bending thing. And then it's also a new world picture, you know, show us some some boobies, show us some murders. But, you know, that all being said, the movie's like pretty fucking funny. You know, there's a lot of really good intentional and unintentional sort of uh, bad movie kind of humor, awkward acting kind of humor. But again, I, I, I find it all charming. I love, you know, any movie made in 1982 for like $200,000 or whatever. Oh, of yeah. Just like... Yeah, I think it's a great film, but I do think it's like slightly compromised. But that is something that makes it a bit unique throughout is trying to figure out exactly what they were able to get away with, what they wanted, and then, yeah, things that were clearly a bit mandated. So who was like, whose idea was all the sports? Because, you know, that's actually one thing that I find totally like, <laughs> totally shoehorned in, but I, you know, as a sports guy, I love the basketball scene oh, at yeah, the beginning yeah. of the movie where there's just like this this extended scene of the girls playing basketball. All right, girls, it's late. Now stick to your zones. Try to keep open. Diane, don't hog the ball. Okay, now hustle. Down court. Okay, down court. Come on, Diane. And, and then, of course, yeah, like the talk about baseball later and uh, Trish is wearing like a Dodgers shirt. So there's a lot of like very funny sp uh, sports representation, which I appreciate. But, you know, you're right. I mean, and it, it's, again, interesting to think of the, the role reversals that you're seeing throughout this film. Like there's, yes, there's the sports stuff, right? The guys are, are sort of cheerleading their basketball game. They're, they're sort of like, yeah, and they're kind of like, you know, critiquing their bodies a little bit, but they're not playing the game they're not doing sidelined. that sidelined right they're sidelined right the coach is a woman and and even in lots of women's sports it's a lot of men male coaches and and in here the 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 coach is is a strong woman but beyond that there's a lot of other typically you would associate them as more like masculine roles and jobs and professions that are all women in this so you know the very first killing that happens in the movie is a woman who's a like a telephone repair person. We associate that kind of labor with the men, but but no, it's a woman in Not that in job. This world. No, and then later when um, the coach when she goes home, there's this funny gag where there's like you know this a drill that goes straight through her front door, and it's like oh god, you know it's the driller killer, right? But no, it's a a handy person working on the house, and it's also a woman, you know, doing this like construction job on her house, right? So it's interesting that you see a lot of those roles sort of flipped in this film that, you know, the men, again, are all just sort of like weird, ineffectual dweebs that are just kind of standing around and not really helping and not, and not and really like, doing anything. If they're not standing around, they're sort of stalking. Whether or not they're the the killer or not, that's like one, one flourish of the movie I love is constantly playing with the male POV as predatory, right? Because there's that really great, very shaky handheld shot that's just POV following. Uh, it, we should be very upfront. It's hard to keep track of all the names. I've seen this movie name. so many but times. But it's like the weird, yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's like the POV of the gross, the redhead, you know, like sort of meathead teenager yeah. that this girl is seeing. But it's like only revealed after like a minute long stalking shot. He's just like, oh, hey. And then she like <laughs> throws him. Yeah. She like she chucks, kicks his ass. Yeah, she chucks him on the ground yeah. or yeah. whatever. This big football like moron. She flips him. You Speaking know? of like ineffective men in the film. 
film, there's also like the neighbor. What's his name? Mr. Mr. Content. Content. Yeah. And I thought they were calling him uh, Mr. Content. (laughs) (laughs) Who is a very like bizarre kind of character. He's so weird. Yeah. His job is just to like watch and make sure they don't get murdered. And yeah, he like obviously fails. Well, yeah, he he breaks and enters in, in, you know, the, the main house in like the first act where he's just like all of the sudden inside Trish's house being like Trish my god I'm sorry I didn't mean to scare you the door was open I didn't see you anywhere so I got worried and I came in I was just checking the house out yeah and you're like bro what yeah where did you come from he is like he has multiple like scares like that because he's like coming down the stairs and it's foreshadowing like oh the killer's in the house and it's him just being like hey just checking up on everything you know and then later that same girl the one who flipped the you know the redhead uh, football guy she's going outside to collect some firewood which is very unusual for me of just imagining people being like you know oh it's summer in LA let's Let's get a good fire going in the house, right? So anyway, they send her out to get firewood, and then, like, he's got a cleaver and you don't know it's him but again it's like the stalking sequence where it's like oh she's about to get chopped by this cleaver and then it's him again being like hey perfect night for a fire in venice california or whatever you know and then it's revealed why he has the cleaver he's like i'm out snail hunting they tear up my garden and he's killing snails with a cleaver at night and he's like i got 53 already tonight you know i'm like who is this just going around the neighborhood and people's yard chopping up snails with a meat cleaver like are you fucking kidding me but he is cool because he doesn't snitch no yeah he's cool with the weed smoke the maui wowie that's <laughs> being uh toked at this uh cool party <laughs> yeah but also there's another point again the, the men being these dweebs when these two the two dorky guys want to go and like crash the party and see the babes and stuff like that. Yeah, they're like, let's go scare the girls tonight. Yeah, and the one guy's like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Then the other guy's like, they could kick the shit out of us, you know? And he's like dead serious. And that guy's like, yeah, that's true. You buy it, you know, you well, believe it. they're all it. basketball players. Yeah, and they're 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 tough and well, and that's where like the parody elements are still intact, right? It's like one of the great gags is like the one of the boys gets a, a black eye from running into the girls in like the garage when it's dark, and then they're just like ripping on him for having a black eye, like the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Like I would also say, like that I think that you know, and it's it's pretty obvious now when you watch this movie and you know you see the the drill is a penis, folks. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys if you if you saw it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe it doesn't require so much, you know, conversation because I think it's pretty obvious and you know, even when it gets the drill gets broken in half, you know. Yeah, there's a couple uh, money know. shots, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. very pornographic in its framing, which was like super funny. Just the way it's like dangling over the frame and hovering over everyone between the legs and the garage, you yes, know. Yes. Yes. But but I, I, I wanted to sort of talk about the killer more as I think it's like actually a very interesting role. Like I think the way it's sort of depicted and, and the way it's played, people have said, you know, oh, this the, the killer in this is just he's so generic and he's just kind of like this empty sort of uh, he's just a, a, a killer and stuff. Like he does that. kind of look like uh, Fred Armisen. And I thought that was kind of distracting. I also actually kind of thought he gives me Bob vibes from Twin Peaks because he's like wearing all that denim and like he doesn't have Bob's crazy hair but he does kind of have like the soft features. There's just something like appealing in how bland he is and that's sort of what Bob is like. He's not a very gussied up villain. He's very 
plain looking and there's something about the driller killer in this that's also like i actually think it gives him an edge of of terror totally and then he's got all that weird shit at the end where he like pretends to be in the slumber party yeah yeah he he climbs under the blanket yeah he's like caused all this carnage and then he like gets in a sleeping bag and is just like chilling in bliss yeah and like later he's telling the you know the one girl that he's just like i well i I love you that's why i did this and you're like oh man i i think it's really interesting that you sort of connect it to a lynching kind of character because that's how i see the killer he feels like a lynchian kind of character in the sense that to me he looks like this this pastiche of like a 50s bad boy you yeah. know he's like this you can imagine him with the leather jacket on a motorcycle in a an older corman film yeah yeah he's got like that look he's got the leather boots on he's got the jeans the jean jacket the red t-shirt you know and he has this sort of like over the hill you know what a guy in, in you know in 1959 he would have been the bad boy all the girls wanted right but turns out he's a psychotic killer and was yeah. like locked up but he kind of has that and we don't really find out much about him there's no real discussion of him. and we know his name we know he was a killer we know he was in like an insane asylum and that's all that's needed but then i think unlike a lot of other slasher films like he's not always necessarily lurking in the shadows. Like he's very brightly lit in a lot of scenes in the bushes, in the bushes. Like we see him, like his first two killings happen in broad daylight. We kind of always know he's around because we see him so much. And it's kind of this uncanny presence he has because he's so well lit because he's so like sort of well-defined physically. It's really too bad that uh, Molly Haskell never wrote a piece on Slumber Party Massacre. I was, like, searching for one, hoping that she would have, like, included it as an epilogue in a later edition of From Reverence to Rape, but um, she never got around to writing about it. I think this is a very well-constructed film for $200,000 or whatever it was by a a 27-year-old first-time director. It's, It's, to me, very well shot, it's very well edited, and I think that editing speaks a lot to Amy Holden Jones' talents as an editor because there's so many really interesting choices made with the editing here. I think one of the big scenes that that I was really like, oh my god, yeah, this fucking rules. It's when the boys decide, you know, okay, we're gonna make a run for it and they're gonna split up. And then one of the girls that's introduced early in the film, Valerie, she doesn't go to the slumber party, you know, because a couple of the girls are like talking shit about her. And so she decides, now I'm just going to stay home with my sister. And she's at home watching a horror movie on TV. And the boys, you know, they, they go off and, and the girls even say, go to Valerie's house, you know, and use the phone, call for help, whatever. So the boys are on their way over to Valerie's house. They're, they're going to try to get there. And Valerie's inside watching a horror movie. And in the horror movie that she's watching, a phone rings on the TV screen. There's a phone ringing on the TV. And a character picks up, in the, in the movie that she's watching on TV, a character picks up the phone and then immediately cuts to her sister, who's in her bedroom, and she's on the phone. And she's like, hello? I mean, like that, and then that whole sequence is then parallel editing between the boys and their brutal murder and this movie that she's watching on TV and this brutal murder and her sister on the phone. And to me, like that, that was just so well done. You know, I could see so many lesser filmmakers just being like, okay, the boys are out. Now we're going to show the boy sequence. So now we're going to cut here. But like, 
that cut on the phone from it ringing and someone answering it to then the, the, the other girl, Courtney, this younger sister being like, hello? Like, I just love it. It's impressive that the film, you know, still clocks in at 70 minutes and yet it is able to constantly, I mean, I guess maybe that's one of the reasons it does clock in under 75 minutes because it's hopping between all of these locations, but simultaneously. And that's a great sequence too, because it's like she can't hear the cries for help because of the horror movie. And it's like one of the rare times in the film where there is a sort of sound awareness. And if you wanted to rip on this film for any reason, it is, of course, the classic horror movie situational awareness stuff. Characters simply do not hear people being (laughs) butchered in the next room or outside. It is a constant offender of just like, how did you not hear that? Yeah, you they're know? screaming the whole time. Yeah, and they're all... And that drill makes noise, too. And the whole movie, we, yeah, <laughs> the whole movie, like, takes place on a single street. Like, Valerie lives across from Trish. Right so next like, door. They're or right they're right next, next door. door, yeah. So, again, this guy's running around with a drill and butchering people. People are screaming. I don't know. I guess the walls in California are built different, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, they got to have a fire indoors. You know, you got to have good insulation <laughs> if you live in California. Yeah, because there is that whole moment where she's like, oh, I'm so cold. Is anyone else so cold? Yeah, and I'm it, was, just like... it was probably 68 degrees in Venice, California, you know, and they're fucking freezing their asses off. You know, it's funny, too, that uh, the sort of, like, story behind Slumber Party has to do with sort of, like, Scorsese and Corman kind of, like, telling this woman, oh, you should do it. You should make this film because that's actually the sort of, like, quick backstory of... A Question of Silence. I don't know if you guys read this, but Marlene Goris took the script to Chantal Ackerman, and Chantal said, you should direct this, and encouraged her to apply for state funding in the Netherlands, and that's ultimately what happened. But she wrote it being like, you should direct it, Chantal, and Chantal's like, no, no. You go do it, you know. So I must say, Chantel's version of that would have been fucking <laughs> would have been, awesome, would have been amazing. Yeah, <laughs> but Marlene's is also a beautiful film, so great work. Yeah, so I thought that was yeah, like you know, again, and especially still in the '80s, like women were largely shut out of the industry, and it's yeah, it's you know, interesting that both of these films from this year had these sort of like elder filmmaker figures encouraging these young uh, filmmakers to to do their thing, and I think ultimately, yeah, it's like you can tell how personal. You you know, both films are on so many levels, and uh, and I and I love that. Yeah, Amy Holden Jones is actually, you know, she didn't really then get a lot of offers to be a director after this because she said Hollywood, you know, was still considered. It was very much, you know, for for women directors, very hard to get work, you know. And she she singles out Corman too in that regard of Corman being somebody that didn't really see gender as far as working on films. And she said, you know, he'll give anyone a chance. <laughs> Exactly. Right. And that was that's, you know, it's it's, again, you know, a testament, I think, like how great Roger Corman was for recognizing talent, for not caring who someone was or where they went to film school. Peter Bogdanovich make movies. I mean, mean, that's fucked up. Yeah. But she did say she was like, I've never had an experience like working with New World Pictures. She said they're so hands off. Like Corman was like, here are the rules. Tits, blood, a, a snappy trailer. And go to town, you know, and if you can make it cheap, like that's, that's what I'm looking for. And there's so many great stories of that, you know, young first time directors 
working with like new world pictures and being like, he never fucking came to set once or whatever, you know, like he didn't give a shit. Like he was like, go for it. Like make it cool. Like do something well. And, but she did say like after that, like her career, you know, she, she struggled in many respects because of gender inequality in perception of women. The silence surrounding Amy Holden Jones. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah. She only made a couple other films. And I mean, I, I think it's probably worth shouting out anyways, even though I haven't seen it, but the film love letters, which came out the next year with Jamie Lee Curtis by Amy Holden Jones is supposed to be very, very good. Yeah. She ended up transitioning to basically just being um, a writer, you know, and would come in and yeah, she has a lot of writing credits. Co-write scripts and stuff like that. And I think her like latest thing is like executive producing some TV show on ABC, The Resident, which I've only like ever, you know, seen dumb commercials for, but I have no idea what it is or what it's about. But wow, she wrote Beethoven with yeah. John Hughes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did. She co-wrote The Relic. Uh, which is, you know, a, a controversial film. <laughs> <laughs> and she co-wrote um, the 1994 Getaway yes. with Alec Baldwin. Very good yeah. movie. Amy Holden Jones obviously, you know, doesn't have like a ton of these, you know, really big credits and certainly didn't go on to a great directing career, but her editing credits were also pretty interesting if you looked at her editing yeah, credits. I saw so. that um, in order to make Slumber Party Massacre, she actually turned down the job of editing E.T., Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, I agree. That's what she said. Yeah, I'm sure she would have got paid quite a bit to do that. Right, but she, again, said, you know, the the opportunity to direct a film was so much more, she felt like, exciting than, you know, being an editor. And, And I read another interview with her where she was saying part of her frustration as an editor was this feeling that as an editor, in a lot of situations, you're really shaping a lot of the choices that get made in the film. You're really sort of putting the picture together and not getting much credit for it. In, Tell in me about it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right, you know? And then uh, Marlene Goris also seems to have at least a relatively storied career of some other films. Uh, she seems to be clearly, I mean, with the Doris Lessing little cameo in the film, she seems to be a bit of a bookworm. She also made a the Mrs. Dalloway film, and then she also, one of the few filmmakers that ever adapted Nabokov, she did the Luzin Defense film. So yeah, Marsh, you know, you you picked the topic this week of Murder, She Wrote, and this is what we brought to the table. Do you have any, you know, being such a crime freak, uh, a man with a criminal mind, as as you said, do you have any other particular favorite crime films written and directed by women? In fact, the uh, couple episodes back when we did Bad Romance, I was dangerously close to picking Jane Campion's In the Cut from 2001. And that is a film that I love and I only saw fairly recently. And you can, you know, put me in the camp of, you know, people who think it was misunderstood and it's actually this just sort of extremely fucked up and disturbing kind of masterpiece. And so like in it, Meg Ryan, dressed like Nicole Kidman, plays this school teacher who lives in Manhattan and she sort of falls in and in love maybe, uh, with (laughs) Mark Ruffalo, who's a homicide detective, and there's like a series of serial killings in her neighborhood going on. But really, it's just like Campion's direction and the scrambled editing and the shallow focus cinematography are just like mind-blowing stuff. You get to see Mark Ruffalo's dick in that movie, I think, too. That's right. Yeah, it's like one of those movies like, uh, you know, forgive me, but it's like Polanski's Repulsion, where this woman kind of encounters a series of grotesque men 
uh, that all turn out to be kind of like nightmares in the film. It has that kind of like hallucinatory uh, element to it. And just real quick shout out to Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel, one of the one of the <laughs> one of the great sort of fucked up, uh, you know, female to talk about either, uh, you know, like the, the phallic. Uh, sort of weapon, right? Uh, that's what the Blue Steel is all about. And shooting Ron Silver. Very good. All right. So uh, next week, uh, Andy, it is once again your time to pick the topic. So what do you got cooking for us? I feel like a, a lot of what we've been watching recently, you know, we've a lot of really like heavy stuff and a lot of like violent stuff and Certainly today was no exception to that. You know, we've had a lot of topics with murder and violence and revolution and, and conflict. And, and so nuclear th- bombs. And Yeah, to say nothing of nuclear holocaust, right? So I felt, you know, man, we really need to lighten things up. And, and in my mind, I think one of the, the lightest, the airiest, the brightest, and uh, happiest of all, like, cinematic genres and forms is the classic... Hollywood musical. So that is my pick. I think we need a little song and dance to cleanse our palates from all this murder and mayhem and chaos and struggle and class and gender inequality. So let's have it. Bring us your musical numbers. I can't wait to sing you a song. Like David Bowie said, uh, let's dance. Hell yeah. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Did you happen to catch last night's ball game? We're trying to figure out where the six runs came from. Well, let's see, we got Say's uh, Homer, obviously. Yeah. Four. Okay, here's one. I'll take all this. You can pay with the ten. Okay. Pizza. <laughs>